The following message is from Grace on the Ashley Baptist Church, located in Charleston, South Carolina. For more information about Grace on the Ashley, visit graceontheashley.org. last week. This is the first Sunday morning sermon that he's ever preached, and I uh, just couldn't be more uh, proud and thrilled with, uh, uh, with what, what Josh taught us last week. He did just such a fantastic job. Uh, I sat there in the front thinking, man, I wish my first sermon was anywhere in the same ball field as that. So uh, again, just grateful for godly men who are willing to step out of comfort zones and get up in front of people with all your eyes staring up. It's a really strange place to be, to be honest with you. And um, we, we talked a little bit this week and debriefed from his message. And I reminded him that one of the things that somebody told me when I was younger, an older pastor, is... He said the difference between preaching to uh, adults versus, say, teenagers or kids is that uh, teenagers, if they're not interested in what you're saying, they have the courtesy to do something else while you're talking. Adults, they just stare at you the whole time. You have no idea whether they're in the room or out of the room, into next week or at lunch or wherever. But, uh, but again, just uh, grateful for, for Josh's ministry of the Word among us last week. Well, again, it's, it's our anniversary, eight years. Does it seem like eight years to you? It's kind of like real marriage to me. It seems like, on one hand, we've been married forever. Uh, and on the other hand, it seems like just yesterday we got married. So I think, it's, I think it's true of, at least my experience in church life here, has been, it seems like just yesterday we were smashing two congregations together and planting them as grace on the Ashley. But... Uh, on the other hand, there's a lot that's happened in the last eight years, and um, uh, a lot that's, that's good, a lot that's been challenging, and we're grateful to God for all of it. And we're excited as we move into year number nine at, at what God is going to do in the life of our church. I believe He's going to do something unique. I believe He's going to do something new for us this year. I believe He's going to help us uh, to be better at what He's called us to do than we have been before. And I hope that you look forward with anticipation for the new year as well. What I want to do uh, for this month is pull out of our series on Hebrews. It's a little unusual for us to stop sort of our, our journey through a book. Uh, but I want to do that here and, and set the table uh, for our trajectory for 2019. I want us to go back this morning and to review some of the values that we've established as sort of foundational to who we are as a church. And I want to zoom in on one of our four main values and set that sort of as the trajectory for 2019. And I want to impress it upon you. I want you to feel it. I want you to understand the burden of it. And I want you to be excited by it. So that's my goal this morning. Uh, You may remember, I trust that you've all fully memorized our four main values as a church, right? Just nod your head. I won't know any different. Um, The first three are are these. um, Delighting in the truth foundational to who we are as a church is we are a people who delights in the truth. We care about the truth. The truth matters to us. And when I say the truth, you understand that I mean the Word of God. It's foundational to everything we are as a church. It's foundational to what we do all around. It sort of permeates everything that we do, the songs we sing, the way we preach, the things that we teach in small groups and so forth. Uh, The truth matters to us. We believe that it's God's truth, that it's God's Word, and that His power moves as His truth goes out and it transforms people's lives. It's not in our charisma. It's not in our ability to entertain 
or to draw a crowd or to use any sort of human wisdom to attract people to Jesus. It's the Word of God that goes in power and transforms the human heart and draws people to Christ. And it's by the Spirit, through the Word, that people come to know Jesus as Lord and Savior. And so the truth is foundational to everything we do. It's really a bedrock of of, of what we do. We hold God's Word high. But we also care about investing in others. We're not people just with our nose in a book. We're, we're people who understand that, that God has put us in this world not to live as lone rangers who just study theology, but He's designed us to live in community with other people. That He's called us to journey life with other people. That, that our, our best experience of the Christian life is not when it's run by itself, when we're a, a marathon runner on our own with nobody around in the woods. It's, it's best run when we're together. I need you in my life, and you need me in your life. And the people who sit around you, we need one another. And it's important for us as a church to always have in our focus that, that we matter to one another and that we should be investing in each other. And this shows up in a lot of ways in the life of our church. It shows up in the way we do hospitality. It shows up in the way that we treat people who are new, who come and worship with us on a Sunday morning, the way we welcome them. It shows up in, in how people are consistently breaking off into groups of two or three and doing things like partners, discipleship that many of you are involved in right now, one-on-one, walking through the Word together. Um, that's one of the ways that we invest in others. It shows up in how you serve in our children children's ministry and how you serve in our nursery and how you serve in all the various places where ministry is going on. It's a way of investing in other people, understanding that life isn't just about us, but God has called us to care about, to love, and to be at work in the lives of others around us. And so that's an important thing to us as a church. Thirdly, we, we care about being a generous people. We don't want to be stingy people. We want to be a, a, a church that overflows with generosity, and that shows up in a lot of ways as well. I don't have time to sort of uh, bit by bit lay that out, but I see a lot of things behind the scenes that you never see on the surface. I, I see, uh, as a pastor, often needs that come up in the life of the body that are private needs that nobody knows about. And oftentimes when needs come up and it crosses my radar, there's almost always somebody else in the body that comes along and says, hey, I can meet that need. And they generously give, generously help uh, for the benefit of someone else. Uh, your giving is a, is a sign of your generosity. And by the way, just let me pause and say thank you for finishing 2018 strong in your, uh, in your giving, your tithes and your offerings. We, we had a sort of a, a, a challenging fourth quarter, and Robert, our uh, uh, financial guy, and I were talking about that going into the fourth quarter, and, and I just believed that you were going to finish strong. And, and praise the Lord, we had a fantastic December. I mean fantastic December. Uh, you, you guys just, you, you literally lived out that fourth value, overflowed with generosity in your giving, and it made a huge difference uh, in the life of our church as we finished out the year and as we position ourselves for 2019. So I want to uh, just thank you and celebrate uh, you in, in just living out that value uh, that we've established as a church. But there's a fourth value. And by the way, before we go to that, let me just say, I think in all of these three things, in the first eight years of the life of our church, we've spent a lot of time investing and building these values as a part of our church culture. And I see evidence all around that these things exist. And they're not just things that we say. They're not just things that we print. They're not just things that we say we want to be, but they're actually things that we are. And I see evidence of it throughout the the body, uh, throughout the year. But I want to turn your attention to our fourth value. Our fourth value we've called growing to go. 
And, and it's here where our greatest challenge is. It is in this value that when I look across the landscape of church life in 2018, we have not lived up to what we've claimed to be. And it's this value that deserves our attention and needs our attention and our focus throughout 2019. It's here where we're printing that we are something, but our actions are not quite matching up to what we are saying. And so... That provides for us a great opportunity, doesn't it? It provides for us a great opportunity to rise to a challenge this year and to be the people that we say we want to be, that we believe God's calling us to be. So this is going to be our our theme, and I'm going to talk a lot about this value over the month of January, and we're going to set a lot of wheels in motion throughout the year to remind you throughout the year that we are to be, that we have to be a people who are growing in our faith with a view of going out into our city. Let me just share with you some statistics sort of to set the table for that. Um, I don't know how much you know about the city in which you live. I don't know how much you know about the zip code in which we are currently situated, but let me give you a little bit of information. The population of our zip code, what would you guess that is? 29414. 40,000, there's a genius on the front row. Swing and a miss. All right. 40,727 people live in our zip code. That's projected to move up to 44,000. That's an old statistic, a couple years old. 44,518 people in our zip code within just the next few years. That's a lot of people. If you want to zoom out a little bit further and just draw uh, like a a five-mile radius around where you're sitting right now and ask what is the population of that five-mile radius circle, what would you think that is? Don't give it to them. What would you think that is? That's not a bad guess. Uh, It's just a little over 100,000 right now, and it's also projected to grow uh, pretty significantly by 2020. So by next year, 107,000. 692 people within five miles of where we sit, where you sit, where I stand right now. That's a lot of people. The growth rate is projected to be, to continue on the same trajectory, which is more than double the average growth rate of the United States as a whole. So that means we live in the middle of a heck of a lot of people, and that trend isn't slowing down. People are moving here quickly, by the thousands, in a relatively short amount of time. The average age around us within that circle, 75% of those people are under 58 years old. That's instructive. But it's not what I want to focus on. What I want to focus on is this. What about their faith involvement? What, what, what is the status of their faith? Well, according to the census data, uh, those within that circle, within that radius, who have no faith involvement, it's 30%, 30%. Zero faith involvement. So in our zip code alone, that's 12,218 people. In our five-mile radius, that's somewhere in the vicinity of about 30,000 people who say, when asked, I have no faith involvement at all. If you zoom out a little bit and you ask, well, what about those with moderate faith involvement? They, they have some. They, when, when, when they're asked, what's your faith involvement, they have something at least to say. That's another 29% of those around us. Another 11,811 in our zip code, another approximately 29,000 in the radius of five miles. So you add up those, 
within five miles of us, or if you want to narrow down to our zip code, who have either no faith involvement or just moderate faith involvement. Something really... I went to church on Easter. That's about 59% of those around us. Now, you can do the math faster than I can. Is that a, a little bit of people or is that a lot of people? That's a lot of people. If you think about it, the next time you're in the Walmart right down the street or in Vilo across the street, and when you're, when you're in there, walk around with a mindset, 59% of the people that, on average that I see in the store today have no faith involvement or at best moderate faith involvement. That's a lot of people. So some 24,000 in our zip code, 59,000 within a five-mile radius. I, I give you those numbers because I want you to understand that we are precisely situated in the very middle of a raging mission field. And the statistics are not trending for the better. They're trending for the worse. We don't need to go anywhere to find lost people. We don't really need to do much of anything to find lost people except open our eyes. They're all around us. There are other statistics that are instructive for the people around us, and we'll share those on another time. But here's the statistic, the statistic that I want to share with you that's most important for us to look at this morning in light of these numbers. 2018, baptisms, Grace on the Ashley Church. Two. I'm going to let that sink in for just a second. Within five miles, 24,000 people who don't know Jesus Christ as Lord and Savior. Two. Now, I say that because I want you to feel the weight of that, because I feel the weight of that. I want to share with you, as your pastor, I'm embarrassed by that. I'm embarrassed to put that on the screen. I'm embarrassed for that to go out on the Internet. And I feel the responsibility for that because I'm the pastor who's responsible for leading here. So that means I haven't done a good job, and I need to do a better job. But I want you to feel a little bit of that weight as well because we have everything we need to reach this city for Christ. And for some reason, we have not yet done that. So on the one hand, I want you to feel that weight. But I don't want you to dwell on that too deeply because I want you to understand that that's a weight that we need to carry, but it's an opportunity that should be exciting to you. It's an opportunity for us to improve. It's an opportunity for us to set our trajectory into a new year so that when we stand here on the brink of 2020 and I put this same slide up, that that number is not two. It's 22 or 202 or something else. Here's the questions that we need to really be considering as we launch into a new year. What does it look like for us as a church to go into this city? into our nation, and into the world. What does that look like for us? I don't mean in general. I don't mean in vague terms. I mean specifically, what does that look like for us to not talk about going into the city, but for us to actually go? It's a question we're going to talk about a lot this year. It's a question we're going to think about a lot this year. A second question I want you to consider. Can we as a church be content continually gathering within these walls doing what we do while the world around us, those thousands of people, slip out into eternity apart from Christ. Can we be content with that? I hope you can't be content with that. 
I can't be content with that. But we need to consider that question. Because it's possible that you might say to me, yep, Pastor, we are content with that. We're okay with that. A third question that's more personal. What fears, what preferences, what sins, what theological barriers are getting in the way and holding you and me and us back from penetrating the darkness that's around us? What fears, what preferences, what sins, what theological boundaries are holding us back? That's a serious question for me to consider. It's a serious question for you to consider. It's a serious question that we're going to look at pretty intensely over these next weeks. I set all that up because I want you to understand the burden that's on my heart. That God has done a remarkable thing here in the life of this church in the last eight years. But there's something that's still out there that we say that we value, that we have not yet lived And I'm saying to you this morning and all throughout this month, let's go after it. Let's go get it. Let's go do what God's called us to do. Let's shed whatever it is that's holding back. Whatever fears, whatever preferences, whatever theological barriers, whatever sins that are hanging on to us that are keeping us from going, we need to dump them this year. And we need to get out of here and get out there and do what God's called us to do and what Peter is going to instruct us to do. This morning, But before we go there, I want to tell you about somebody that I highly respect, who's long dead at this point. A man by the name of C.T. Studd. Have you ever heard of a guy named C.T. Studd? I'll show you a picture. You'll be impressed with him. <clears throat> He's a dapper fellow right there. You may not have heard of C.T. Studd because he lived a long time before any of us were born, back in the late 1800s. But if you studied missiology at all, history of missions... You know, C.T. Studd was a remarkable missionary. He was born in, uh, in, in the, the late 1800s, around 1860, uh, in England. He was the son of a, a wealthy planter. He had brothers, and their family was wealthy. His dad had done very well as a planter. He had retired with a, a, a truckload of money. C.T. Studd grew up in a wealthy home. He was comfortable. He had all the things he needed. They had wealth for their day. And uh, he was an outstanding athlete. He was a great cricketer. I know that many of you are great cricketers. Um, I've seen you cricket outside. No, I haven't ever seen you do that. You don't even know what cricket is. It's a game they play in England, okay? He was good at it. He was really good at it. A competitive athlete. When he was 19, he was the captain of the team at uh, Eton College and was doing really well. But he was not a believer. He didn't know the Lord Jesus. It wasn't until, as an 18-year-old, a preacher came to visit their home. And during the home visit... Uh, Charles, or C.T. as he was later known, got up to leave to go to cricket practice. And on his way out the door, the preacher hollered out to him, Hey, are you a Christian? To which he stammered an answer that was unsatisfactory to the preacher, who then had him sit down and shared with him the gospel of Jesus Christ. And it was on that day that Stud said this. He said, I got down on my knees and I did say thank you to God. And right then and there, joy and peace came into my soul. I knew then what it was to be born again. And the Bible, which had been so dry to me before, became everything. Not only that, but his two brothers were saved at the same time. And you would think that after such a conversion, he would launch right out into a remarkable life of service for the Lord, but he didn't. He went, in fact, into a season of about six years where his life was totally dormant as far as anything significant 
for the Lord. He said this about that season. Instead of going and telling others of the love of Christ, I was selfish and I kept the knowledge to myself. The result was that I gradually, excuse me, that gradually my love began to grow cold and the love of the world began to come in. I spent six years in that unhappy, backslidden state. It wasn't until one of his brothers got deathly ill. And at the same time, he went to hear a man by the name of D.L. Moody preach that the Lord awakened his soul to what it is he was to be about in his life. He says this, not only did the joy of his salvation return, but he said this, still further, what was better than all, he set me to work for him. And I began to try to persuade my friends to read the gospel and to speak to them individually about their souls. I cannot tell you what joy it gave me to bring the first soul to the Lord Jesus Christ. I've tasted almost all the pleasures that this world can give. But those pleasures were nothing compared to the joy that the saving of that one soul gave me. It's a remarkable statement from one who understood the pleasures of the world at the time and had access to them. That set him off on a trajectory that launched him into missionary service to China for many years. Not only China, but he also spent time, significant time in India. He married. He had children. He sacrificed tremendously to take the gospel to China and to India and then later to portions of, of Africa. When he was 25 years old, he inherited all of his dad's wealth. And he prayed about that when he was on the mission field in China, and he determined that he didn't need any of it and didn't want any of it, so he gave it all away so that he wouldn't be distracted from his mission's ministry of taking the gospel around the world. There's so much more that could be said about him. But he worked himself to death on the mission field, literally. Literally worked himself to death at great cost, at great sacrifice. If you have time, you can go online and you can Google uh, a sermon that he preached and it's written out. It's called The Chocolate Soldier. Doesn't that pique your interest? Don't you want to read a sermon called The Chocolate Soldier? You need to look that up and read it because you will understand his heart and his attitude toward the church of his day which largely sat within the walls of their buildings and refused to go while he and a handful of others went and sacrificed for the gospel. He calls believers who do such things chocolate soldiers. When just a little bit of heat or water comes, they melt. That's what he means by chocolate soldiers. He says it's unbearable for him to think of sitting and squatting among the sheep instead of going into the mission field. You've got to read it now. It will assault you because he uses some pretty salty descriptions that will hit home a little too painfully. But it's worth the read. He endured all sorts of pain and difficulty to take the gospel around the world. He lost most of his teeth. He suffered several heart attacks. He spent decades apart from his wife and his children. But as he got to the very end of his life, he wrote a little letter that he sent back home. And in it he says this, As I believe I'm now nearing my departure from this world, I have but a few things to rejoice in, and they are these. Number one, that God called me to China, and I went, 
in spite of utmost opposition from all my loved ones. Number two, that I joyfully acted as Christ told that rich young man to act. Number three, that I deliberately, at the call of God, went alone on, on the Bibby Liner in 1910, gave up my life for his work, which was to be henceforth not only for Sudan, but for the whole unevangelized world. And here's what I want you to remember. He said this, My only joys, therefore, are that when God has given me a work to do, I have not refused to do it. My only joys, therefore, are that when God has given me a work to do, I have not refused to do it. The work that God gave that man was not easy work. Reaching the lost never is. But the particular flavor of that that he was called to was particularly painful. And he literally worked himself to death in that task. And I wonder, how does a man get to the end of his life and be able to say something like, the work that God gave me to do throughout my life, I never refused to do it. I don't know about you, but that sort of a testimony really assaults me on a, a multitude of fronts. I can tell you I'm 45. I, I hope I'm not close to dying anytime soon. I hope. But if I died right now and I knew I was going to die tomorrow, I could never say that. I could never say the work that God's given me to do, I never refuse to do. I guarantee you there are things that God's called me to do that I refuse to do. I suspect it's probably true in some ways of you as well. It certainly applies to the work of reaching the lost with the gospel. And Peter writes in 1 Peter toward that end to a group of believers who are suffering suffering dearly. We studied First Peter a couple of years ago, and so you may remember a little bit about that. But it's out of First, First Peter that our value of growing to go comes. And it's out of First Peter that the imperative comes for us to go, and it's tied to growing. So let me read that to you at the beginning of First Peter. I'm going to read chapter 2. Just beginning in verse 1. So put away all malice and all deceit and hypocrisy and envy and all slander. But like newborn infants, long for the pure spiritual milk, that by it you may grow up into salvation. If indeed you've tasted that the Lord is good. Skip down to verse 9. But you are a chosen race, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, a people for his own possession, that you may proclaim the excellencies of him who called you out of darkness into his marvelous light. Peter ties together in 1 Peter 2 two things that should be values to every believer and are certainly values for us as a congregation. And that is a passion to grow in our faith in our knowledge and understanding of who the Lord is, a passion to grow up in our experience of that and our obedience to Him in our life, along with a desire and a passion to go into all the world and take the good news of Jesus to those who've never heard and to those who've refused to believe. In 1 Peter 1, he ties those two things together. And you'll notice that he begins the chapter by calling them to spiritual growth. He says to them, you have to develop an appetite for spiritual growth. In verse 2, you, like newborn babies, crave pure spiritual milk, he says, that, that, that by it you might grow up in your salvation. 
There should be a craving. There should be a longing. There should be a desire. There should be a passion inside of us that says, I'm not content with where I am spiritually at any given moment. There's, there's, there's more road to travel. I haven't arrived yet. I, I need to mature beyond where I am. I need to grow up in my faith. I need to grow up in my obedience. I need to grow up in my understanding of who God is. I need to grow up in my prayer life. I need to grow up in my, in my engagement with the body. I need to grow up in the Word. There should be a craving, a desire, an appetite for that. We have to develop that. The Spirit of God plants it within us like He did in C.T. Studd, but it's something we cultivate as well. But He goes on to say at the beginning of that, we need to not only just develop an appetite, but we have to dine on the right food. He says, crave the pure spiritual milk. I mean, once we've developed the right appetite, we have to crave the right food. I mean, it, it stands to reason, you know this just sort of in the living of your lives, right? That, that, our, that our physical health in that regard, what we eat has a a direct impact on our health and our growth, doesn't it? Uh, think about that with me for just a moment. Does what you eat have a direct impact on your health and your growth? Yes. The, this is the right answer. Yes, Pastor, it does. If I eat too much sugar, does it have an impact on my health? Yes, I get diabetes. If I eat too much fat and too much cholesterol, does that have a, uh, an impact on my health and my growth? Yes, it does obese and I have heart problems. And here's one thing I know about myself. I'm not that healthy of an eater. That's the truth. That's confession time right here. If you have vegetables, bring them on. But I'm not a healthy eater. And I know exactly what my problem is. My problem is my cravings. I crave the wrong things. Do you ever have that problem? Craving the wrong things? I crave duck donuts. That's what I crave. Have you had those? They're fantastic. You, you, you just, mm. I crave ice cream. I crave brownies. I love barbecue ribs and fried stuff. Anything. You can fry it all. Go to the fair. Eat those Oreos that they fry. They're, they're great. The problem is I crave stuff that's bad for me. I never crave asparagus. I never wake up and say, man, I just want a great bowl of lettuce today and some salad. I don't crave stuff that's good for me. I normally just crave the stuff that's bad for me. And that has a direct impact on my health and growth physically. You can all pray for me in 2019 that that will improve. Peter's argument here, though, is, is a parallel to that. He's saying spiritually the same principle uh, really applies, that 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 our, our spiritual growth and our spiritual health is is impacted by the things that we crave and the things that we consume. And he's saying here, crave pure spiritual milk. And he defines the milk in the context as simply the Word of God. It is the Word of God that we're to crave because as we consume it, we grow. We grow. Pure spiritual milk. It's the imagery of an infant, isn't it? A newborn baby craves milk. Those of you who've had them, you know. For them, milk is not a luxury. It's an absolute necessity. If a baby is going to grow, if a baby is going to be healthy, it needs milk. It craves it. And then when it consumes it, it grows. And Peter is saying, listen, you need to have the same craving. Like a newborn baby craves his milk from his mother, you need to crave the Word of God. Because by it, as you consume it, it has a direct impact on your health and your growth. 
And it's how you grow. It's by it that you grow. And then he adds that qualifying statement, if indeed you've tasted that the Lord is good. If indeed you've tasted that the Lord is good. I paraphrase that. What he's simply saying is, if indeed you're a believer. If you've already tasted and seen that the Lord is good, when you continue to consume His Word, it will result in health and growth. If it doesn't result in health and growth when you consume His Word, then the odds are you probably haven't tasted and seen that the Lord is good. He's simply arguing that what we crave is shaped by what we've previously tasted and loved. When I hit the ground in California, I, make, I get my rental car, and the first place I stop is In-N-Out Burger. Again, confession time. It's not healthy food, but I crave it. And I crave it because I've had it before, and I know how wonderful it is, and I want to go right back to it. I crave what I've tasted and loved. If you've tasted and seen that the Lord is good, then that will plant a craving in your heart to taste and see even more. And as you consume His Word, you see even more how good the Lord is. And by that, you grow. And you're healthy. And that's why at Grace on the Ashley, we care about growing. Because we have a mandate from God's Word to grow. To taste and see that the Lord is good. And to crave growth. And to run after the Word of God hard. So that by it, we might be healthy as individuals. And as as a body, that we might grow in our walk with the Lord. But Peter turns to verse 9. And he ties it there with this statement where he says, But you're a chosen race, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, a people for his own possession. So that you might proclaim the excellencies of him who called you out of darkness into his marvelous light. And what Peter is saying is this, you need to crave growth, but you need to not crave growth as an end unto itself. That God hasn't called you to taste and see that the Lord is good so that you can just continue to taste it for yourself and enjoy the Lord on your own. He's called you to taste and see and to consume the pure milk of the Word so that by it you might grow and be healthy in order that you might go out and proclaim His excellencies to the world. The purpose of growth is that we might go. The purpose of growth is not that we might just sit and grow and grow and grow and grow and grow as an end unto itself. The purpose of growth is that we might go. And he says that we might proclaim the excellencies of him who called you out of darkness into his marvelous light. Proclaim that word is only used here in the New Testament. It simply means to publish, to advertise. To publish, to advertise something that's previously unknown. Why does God want me to grow in my faith? He wants me to grow in my faith and maturity so that I might get out there and advertise and publish that the Lord is good. That I might go out there and publish that Christ can transform the heart of a sinner and save him or her. God wants me to grow up, not to keep it to myself and isolate myself from the world, but He wants me to grow up so that I can go out. Again, food illustrations. I'm so sorry. But it's true. When you eat something great, you want to tell people, don't you? If you're on Facebook, you know all about this, right? You see the pictures. Hey, look at my steak I ate for supper tonight. People eat something good, they want to tell everybody. Peter says when you've tasted and seen that the Lord is good, the drive in your heart should be to get out and tell somebody about that. To proclaim it, to publish it, to advertise it. 
the excellencies here that he's talking about, that's simply a word that means heroic deeds or the ability to do heroic deeds. So the idea is that we get out in the world and we publish and we advertise. We're the advertising agents for the Lord Jesus and that we're to publish and advertise that He does mighty things. That He can change the, the lost soul and transform it into the image of His Son, Jesus. That He can take sins and He can wash them as white as snow. That He can forgive the darkest sinner and turn him into a saint. That He can take people from the kingdom of darkness and transport them into the kingdom of His beloved Son. Says you're a chosen race, a royal priesthood, a people for His... Uh, a holy nation, a people for His own possession. That's all Old Testament language. That's all Old Testament language that, that, that the Old Testament uses to describe Israel. And he's saying that, uh, that there's a parallel between what God had called Israel to do and what God has called His church to do. Just as Israel was chosen, you're chosen. Just as Israel was set apart for the work of the Lord, you're set apart for the work of the Lord. Just as Israel was to be holy, you are to be holy. But in fact, God has called you and He's set you apart and He's sanctified you for a reason. And that's that you might go. He saved you so that you might go out there and publish to the world that He saves. He's changed you so that you can go out there and publish to the world that they can be changed as well. He's shown you mercy that you can go out and proclaim and advertise to the world that God is merciful. He's forgiven you that you might go out there and tell people, there's a way for your sins to be washed. That was God's plan for Israel, you know. In Genesis chapter 22, all the way at the beginning, listen to what God says. He says, I'll surely bless you. I'll surely multiply your offspring as the stars of, of heaven and the sand of the sea. He's speaking to Abraham here. And your offspring shall possess the gate of his enemies. And in your offspring shall all the nations of the world be blessed. God's intention was to bless all the nations of the world through Israel. In Isaiah chapter 49, verse 6, he repeats the same thing, essentially. He says... Is it too light a thing that you should be my servant to raise up for the tribes of Jacob and to bring back the preserved of Israel? I will make you as a light for the nations, that my salvation may reach to the end of the earth. God's heart has always been that His salvation would go out to the ends of the earth. The sad and tragic story of Old Testament Israel is that they kept the light under a basket for themselves and refused. They got puffed up in their own spiritual pride, began to look down their nose at the pagan people around them, and instead of going, they isolated themselves. And so God has raised up a church by the blood of Jesus purchased that we might go and publish and advertise His mighty deeds. That's our basic call as believers. The last thing Jesus said in Matthew 28, Go, therefore, and make disciples of all nations. you remember this, right? Go, make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit, teaching them to obey everything that I've commanded you. We're to go and make disciples. And making disciples involves two things. It involves sharing the gospel with people who don't know it, persuading them to come to Christ, calling them to come to Christ, pleading with them to come to Christ, and when they do, teaching them all that God has commanded in His Word that they might grow and become people who then go themselves and tell somebody else. 
That's what it means to make disciples. It means all of that. You can't split it in half. It's all one thing. Making disciples, going to the lost, and maturing believers. It's two sides of the same coin. It's our basic call as believers. It's the most significant work a human being can do. And it is basic to the heart of our Lord and Savior Jesus. Our time is is slipping away, but I want to give you one example. In Matthew chapter 9, we see this modeled by the Lord Himself. It tells us when He saw the crowds, in verse 36 of chapter 9, He had compassion for them because they were harassed and helpless like sheep without a shepherd. And He said to His disciples, The harvest is plentiful, but the workers are few or the laborers are few. Therefore pray earnestly to the Lord of the harvest to send out laborers into His harvest. When the Lord looked down on a crowd of people, a crowd that was filled with lost people, it tells us He was, he was moved with compassion. That word that's translated moved with compassion is a Greek word that means it has the essence of feeling it in your gut. That word for compassion is a word that has to do with the bowels of all things. Isn't that interesting? That's exciting to think about right now, isn't it? It's just another way of saying he felt it in his gut. When he looked out at the people and he saw lost people, it, didn't just, it wasn't just a passing thought through his mind. It wasn't something he could say, oh, there's lost people. Next. He looked down on them and he said, he said to his disciples, listen to what he says. He says, they're harassed and they're helpless like sheep without a shepherd. Do you know what sheep without a shepherd are? They're dead. That's what they are. Sheep without a shepherd are soon to be, very soon to be, dead. That's what they are. Jesus wasn't saying, look at all those lost people. They look like cute little, cuddly little, fluffy sheep just wandering around. When he looked down in that crowd, he saw death. Sheep can't defend themselves. They don't last without a shepherd. They die quickly. They're prey for predators. And when Jesus looked down in a crowd, it moved him in his gut because he saw in the eyes of the people to whom he looked, he saw death. He knew, he knew that if they didn't submit themselves to the truth and receive the truth, they would die and go out into an eternity of hell. That's what he knew. It's what drove him. And it's what drove him to say the harvest is plentiful. And you can track that word harvest too sometime on your own. But you look at harvest in the Old Testament, uh, a whole bunch of, if not the majority of times it's used, it's, it's used not of a happy harvest, but of judgment. He looks out and he sees death and he understands that the judgment is coming. And he says to the people around him, you need to pray. Pray. There's a lot of dying sheep out there. And there's not nearly enough people to go. Pray for more people to go. Pray that God would raise up an army of people to go and rescue them. Matthew chapter 4, a little earlier in the ministry of Jesus, verse 18, it tells us that while he was walking by the Sea of Galilee, he saw two brothers, Simon called Peter and Andrew his brother, casting a net into the sea, for they were fishermen. And he said to them, Come follow me, and I will make you fishers of men. Do you know from the very beginning when Christ has been calling people to follow him, it's always been this same call. Come follow me and I will make you a fisherman. It's a a two-part calling. 
follow Christ and become a fisherman. Follow Christ with the aim of growing in order that you might go. That's what he called his disciples to do. Come follow me. He didn't say, come follow me so you can see how much you can learn about me. Come follow me so you can get every bit of minutia of doctrine just right so that you can go out there and prove all those Arminians wrong. That was just a little throw in there. He says, come follow me so that I can make you into somebody who can go out and fish for people. It's always what he's called us to be. The goal of following is to fish. The goal of growing is to go. It's another way of saying the same things. And that's exactly what those men did. And the Bible tells us the Lord added to their number daily. We see that all throughout the book of Acts. I'm convinced that when God's people get serious about God's Word, in particular these commands to follow and fish, to grow and to go, the inevitable result is God adds to their numbers regularly. I'm not a big fisherman. Don't know a lot about it. Done it some in my life. Not very well. But I know this. I know fish don't just jump in the boat. It requires some effort to go fishing. Someone has to intentionally go fishing if they are to catch fish. The same is true of reaching a lost 24,000 people in five miles of us. If we're going to sit around this building and wait on them to wander into the boat, we're going to be sitting and waiting a long time. If they're going to be saved, it's going to be because someone goes. It's not the church down the street's responsibility. It's ours. People catch fish because they go to catch fish. They don't catch fish every time they have an outing. But if they go regularly, there'll be fish in the bucket. Paul Harvey once said this, Too many Christians are no longer fishers of men, but keepers of the aquarium. I like his common wisdom. Painfully true. I think part of the problem is a couple of things. Number one, it's easy for us to forget what it's like to be lost. If you've been a believer for a long time, it's easy to forget what it's like to be lost and to be apart from Christ and to be spinning around out there in a world with no hope, with no Holy Spirit inside, with no peace that passes understanding, with no resource to run to when your life comes crumbling around you, with nowhere to go when you lose your job or you lose your child, with nowhere to go when your marriage falls apart. Nowhere to go when your bank account dries up. I think we've often become so distant from that that we forget what it's like. One of the things that the military has helped me with is remembering what it's like to be lost. Because when I go into that world, I'm surrounded with people who know very much what it's like to be lost. And they lay it all out on the table in very vivid language. It's helpful to me to remember that. Because I easily forget. I think another challenge that we face is we're, we're terrified. We're just afraid. Let's just be honest about it. We're afraid. We're afraid of what people are going to think of us. We're afraid somebody's going to ask us questions we don't know the answer to. 
I'm afraid they're going to throw up some objection that we can't refute. I'm afraid people are going to think we're fanatics. After all, in our culture today, it's not, it's not exactly cool to go around trying to tell people they're wrong. And they need Jesus because they're sinners who are going to hell apart from Him. And so our fear keeps us away. I think perhaps another thing that's underneath the surface, though, is we're not quite as captivated with Jesus as we used to be, maybe, in some sense. We've forgotten what a glorious Savior we serve and what He's done for us. I know you will, Ray. God bless you, brother. Elton Trueblood said this. He's a Quaker scholar. He said, once compared, he one time compared evangelism to fire. Listen to what he said. Evangelism occurs when Christians are so ignited by their contact with Christ that they in turn set other fires. It's easy to determine when something is aflame. It ignites other material. Any fire that does not spread will eventually go out. A church without evangelism is a contradiction in terms just as a fire that does not burn is a contradiction take that to heart C.T. Studd said this some wish to live within the sound of the church or chapel bell I want to run a rescue shop within a yard of hell I don't know of a better way to maybe sort of end this than to have you think about that for just a second. What is it that you want? Are you content to just live within the sound of a church or chapel bell? Or are you interested in running a rescue shop a yard from the hell? We're a yard from hell. Trust me, it's all around us. The question is, will we be a rescue shop? So what fears hold you back? So what sins are holding you back? So what preferences are holding you back? What theological barriers are holding you back? Listen, we have to obey Christ. We have to get out of here. And we have to reach 24,000 people. That's exhausting to think about. But there is nothing that we lack in order to do it except perhaps will I'm going to ask you if you'd bow your head and close your eyes and I want you just to contemplate your own life and this particular area of your life who in your sphere needs to hear the gospel of the Lord Jesus Christ what people in your family what people in your workplace what people in your neighborhood. I want you to see their faces in your mind. And I want you to see them like Jesus sees them, sheep without a shepherd. And I want you to ask yourself the question, what is it that's keeping you away? Why haven't you told them? What fear, what preference, what sin? What theological boundary? What's in the way? And ask God 
by way of responding to His Word this morning to destroy that barrier in your life and to give you the courage to go, even this week. Would you do that? Lord Jesus, we, uh, we marvel at what You've done for us. The first song we sang is a declaration of how dumbfounded we are that you would die for us. That you would save folks like us. That you would take people who rebelled against you and transform us into the image of your Son. But we thank you from the bottom of our hearts for what you've done. And we thank you for that dear man or that dear woman who came across our path at some place in our life and shared the gospel with us. Whoever that was, it wasn't easy. But they obeyed Christ. And our lives are different because of it. So we thank you for those dear folks who did that for us. And even as we think about that and give thanks, Lord, we're mindful that we have people all around us who don't know you. So, Lord, we confess before you right now, individually and corporately, our own sin of not going, not opening our mouths, being captive to fear, being disobedient to your commission. Forgive us for that. And ignite within us, Lord, a passion to see this city one for Jesus, to see our families one for Christ, to see our neighborhoods come to know Jesus Christ the power of His resurrection. I pray for my friends who are thinking about themselves right now, Lord, and identifying those people in their lives and the barriers. Lord, would You destroy those barriers that are keeping them from taking the Gospel. Give them the courage to risk that they might taste what CT Stud tasted, the pleasure of seeing you do your best work in transforming the soul. Help us, Lord, we pray. For Christ's sake, amen. I invite you to stand. We're going to sing a closing song. I'm in the back of the room.